0: So for tonight's session and for tomorrow, I just want to introduce one training resource that we have built and provided for y'all. I think we have a slide of it here. It's something that we have called the Small Group Leader Podcast. I'm oh, glad some of you have heard of it. I hope you enjoy it. It is a podcast by small group leaders for small group leaders. Uh, it begins with a small, uh, if you're familiar with TED Talk Radio, it has a small portion of a sermon or a session taught somewhere with an interview of the person who taught it and then my personal favorite an interview with a student leader who embodies it it's really really cool Uh, So we thoroughly enjoy it. We have the six wins of a small group leader, I think was our first six episodes. Now we're in the middle of a fine feed fight series. And uh, next January, we're going to take a look at the four dysfunctions of small group. Uh, So this is what we love to do. We love to look at science. We love to look at the science of small group and small group leader podcast is that you get to hear from teachers across the nation and student leaders like yourselves who are making disciples, who are making disciples within the context of being a college student. Pretty cool. Sound good? You can find this on Spotify. You can find this on Apple. You can find this on Podbean, iTunes. Yeah, everywhere you can find podcasts, you can find this podcast. Sound good? All right. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. You doing well? Did you get some rest during your free time? Or is it more play? More play. Okay, fair enough. Right, and then you're about to get ready to go to karaoke tonight where Fairbanks is going to face off against Anchorage or something like that. I was just at anchorage Chi Alpha, and they were talking all kinds of trash about Fairbanks not having any singers or any talent and, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So we'll see what's going to happen, you know. We're expecting Pitch Perfect 4 to happen in that cafeteria tonight. But that's all up to you. All right. Matthew, uh, Matthew, chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. My wife, Abby, and I were Chi Alpha directors at New Mexico State University for about six years. And a part of our job was missions trips, which is arguably the most fun and fearful aspect of Chi Alpha ministry. I say this because on mission trips, students make a foreign place their home for seven days They minister to strangers who become friends within a week. They experience real devotion, real community, real responsibility in a short time that can motivate them full time, which is all a part of the fun. The fearful part is these college students like I was, like you are, are college students and at any given time can display a mind of their own or be absent of mind resulting in many students becoming lost on these trips. And there is nothing more fearful for a director than arriving back in your state with less students than you left with. (laughs) Many students get lost within these airports. This is why one of our trip rules for traveling through an airport is for one leader to be at the front of the group, the other leader to be at the back of the group, because without fail, what always happens is a few students fall behind. It is never because they walk at a slower pace but because they're occupied doing numerous different things as they travel through an airport. Some students are studying while they walk. Others have their heads deep into a book. Some are taken up in conversation, but most of the time it's just a few guys who are flirting with a few girls. (laughs) This is not stereotypical. This is a social study. You came here to meet Jesus, but you're also hoping for a conversation with the opposite sex that you can overanalyze later with your roommates. And that's just fine. We've all been there. We encourage that. You already heard Paul about kaiapha tender and whatnot. And when these college students are busy doing everything as they make their way through an airport, they lose sight of the people they're a part of. They begin to follow the larger crowd they're around. The people that they're a part of head down Terminal B. The crowd that they're around heads down Terminal A. And without being conscious of it, these busy students falling behind head down the wrong terminal. And it's at this point that I have to yell to get their attention, to bring them back to where they're supposed to be and who they're supposed to be with, Because they are lost and they do not know they are lost. They have become mistakenly lost because they gave much attention to what they were doing. They neglected who they were actually with. And this happens all too often. Have you ever become mistakenly lost? Have you ever been lost because you were so busy doing something you neglected to be aware of who you were actually with? This is the essence of Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, where Jesus, the King of kings himself, is preaching, saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As we mentioned earlier, this is the real gritty Bible. And this verse means that many are lost and do not know they are lost because they're too busy doing something. They pay no attention to who they are doing it with. Is this not the great heartbreak of God? Many of us do not know when God has left us. Many of us do not know when we have left God. Samson served the Lord, but he was not with the Lord. Judas was a vocational missionary, yet he betrayed Jesus. Before Paul, Saul was a master of biblical theology, yet murdered Christians in the name of defending God's honor, proving it is possible to be around God without being a part of God, and it is possible to let serving the Lord replace knowing the Lord. This is why Matthew 7 says many, a numerous, not small amount of people will identify as Christian and will say on judgment day, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say compassionately, not callously, turn away from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, these prophetic words of Jesus exist to warn us how doing something is not equivalent to being with someone. So we ask then, what is eternal life? What does it mean to be saved? Jesus in Matthew 7 turns people away from him on the grounds that he did not know them. It makes complete sense then that Jesus would define eternal life in John 17, 3 by saying this is eternal life, the life of the ages, to know God, the one true God, and his Son whom he sent. Eternal life is to know Jesus. So with that being said, who is Jesus? The Bible illuminates four different roles the same Jesus has in a person's life. They are friend, savior, bridegroom, and king are four points for tonight's message. We're going to explore what these roles mean in effort to grow in revelation of Jesus, in effort to grow our responsibility to him. So would you pray with me as we continue this message? Jesus, if eternal life is to know you, the one true God, and your son whom you sent, then may we know you, God the way that Abraham called you a friend, the way that you called him a friend, Jesus, the way many people have cried out to you as Savior, who have declared you as husband, as bridegroom, the way people bow to you as king. Man, we know you, Jesus, and help you be known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John fifteen fourteen, Jesus calls his disciples friends for the first time, stating specifically that you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. But how do friends get to this point of agreement and alignment to fulfill commands? I'm going to illustrate some the same points as last night by using a new story, because repetition is the price of knowledge. When we pioneered Kayalfa at New Mexico, we all had one common purpose. We were going to make disciples who made disciples who made disciples, but we all had an uncommon understanding. There was Mike Winters, more commonly known as the party starter, This is because Mike would make a dance floor at any party by dancing to any music. But because he was a white boy with no rhythm, he would shrug his shoulders up and down sporadically with no rhythm at all, like a broken elevator stuck between the first and second floor, and would then clench his fists and repeatedly punch the sky with no rhythm whatsoever. Some of our team had the understanding that parties need to be cut off at their highest point to leave an audience wanting more, to not leave an audience wanting less, but Mike disagreed. This led to much tension as philosophical differences can become nasty when they are moralized. There was Zach Hansen. His intentionality wanted to produce the best small group leaders possible through our leadership training class. And his intensity believed that the best way to do this was to drive our student leader candidates into the heart of downtown Albuquerque, New Mexico, drop them off under a bridge where real life breaking bad happens, (laughs) take their money, and their phones so they cannot contact anybody and leave them stranded and homeless for 72 hours because nothing makes you call on God when you need him like not being able to call on the police when you need them. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the team had the understanding that leadership training should be intense but also rational. This led to much tension as philosophical differences can become nasty when they are moralized. Our only solution to relieve some of these tensions was to introduce more common purposes and more common understandings. We fought for souls, but once a month we would have family days where we fought to be friends with one another. That is common purpose. We understood discipleship, but once a semester we we read the same books together to help us understand organizational leadership. That is common understanding. We built goals collectively instead of just individually. That is common purpose. We kept ministry metrics and defined wins to keep score of how well or unwell we were doing. That is common understanding. And through establishing these common purposes and common understandings, we became friends who stayed friends in spite of different lives that have taken us to different places. Now, I know, you know, that common understanding and common purpose to be friends was preached last night. But this is how essential it is for us to grasp this truth, to be friends with one another And to be friends with Jesus. To be friends of God, we must share in a common understanding while also participating in a common purpose with Him. As the disciples understood that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world, He called them friends. And as the disciples fulfilled the commission of being witnesses to the ends of the earth, making disciples to the ends of the earth, preaching Jesus so that they may present people perfect before Him, Jesus called them friends. Jesus understands it is not theological intelligence which saves a soul. It is not ministry attendance nor volunteerism, volunteerism which saves a soul. It is not morality which saves a soul. It is Jesus, the Son of God, who saves a soul. Salvation, being saved, is not a program, nor a philosophy, nor a practice. It is only the person of Jesus. And his purpose is to disciple into another person through patience and prayers and personal friendship, this understanding that salvation is Jesus. When we have this common understanding that Jesus is salvation, and when we have this common purpose that discipling others helps them understand Jesus is salvation, we become friends with God. If that is what it means to be friends with Jesus, what does it mean for Jesus to be Savior? Storytelling. Storytelling whether it be the pages of literature or the films of Hollywood, have embraced this depiction of saviors. There are many stories of saviors or heroes that we could look at, but just look at a few with me. In the late 90s, there was a movie called Batman and Robin, where Batman saved Gotham from Arnold Schwarzenegger pretending to be Mr. Freeze. This villain's diabolical plan was to literally freeze an entire city with complete ignorance of Summer upsetting his plans. Batman shows up, He saved Gotham from the effects of someone else's selfishness, but enemies continued to rise. In the Fast and Furious movies, which are currently up to nine and already have two more planned, a band of car thieves led by actor Vin Diesel playing Vin Diesel are called on by the government numerous times to save the world because apparently these car thieves are also hackers and soldiers and leaders better than any organization America has to offer. The crew shows up, that's right, they save the world from the effects of someone else's selfishness, but enemies continue to rise. In the first, middle, and current Star Wars trilogy, a band of heroes unite to use laser guns and the force to save the galaxy by fighting against an army with darker laser guns and a darker force that wants to rule the galaxy. Heroes show up, they save the galaxy from the effects of someone else's selfishness, but enemies continue to rise. In literature and film, saviors can save people from the effects of someone else's selfishness, but cannot save people from the cause, selfishness itself. This leads to new enemies rising, new wicked plots forming, new evil threatening. These stories of saviors, they give us a glimpse of the gospel, but it's only a glimmer. Because the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus came to save us from the punishment of selfishness. He also came to save us from the cause of our selfishness. This is what makes him savior. He took the punishment of our sin. He died so we can live. But he also takes away the cause of our sin. Emptying us of our selfish spirits and filling us with his Holy Spirit. As E. Stanley Jones has said, Jesus did not come to get you out of hell. He came to get hell out of you. As C.S. Lewis has said, Jesus has not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. As the Apostle Paul has said, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. As Matthew 21 says, You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is Savior. Not only because he saves us from the punishment of sin, that is restoration. He is Savior because he saves us from the cause of our sin, that is regeneration. He helps us live holy by giving us his Holy Spirit. Jesus is friend. He is Savior. Look with me for a moment at how Jesus' is bridegroom. Hosea 2.16 says, In that day, declares the Lord... You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. In the Bible, there is a common theme of Jesus being known as the bridegroom and we his churches, as his bride. Now, I had this belief that getting married would mean a perfect relationship, that my wife and I would always get along and there would be no quarrels or disagreements, that every decision would be effortlessly unanimous. I believe marriage and a relationship would be void of fighting. I believed that marriage was this perfect culmination of finding the perfect people. So naturally, I was shell shocked into reality when my wife and I had our first married fight. If I may be very transparent with you, I'm going to bring you into the grittiness of that first fight. The one I remember most was a fight we had while living overseas in an old post-Soviet Union apartment. I was reading a Christian book by an old dead guy on servanthood. She had just gotten home from a long day of work and asked for the trash to be taken out. I told her I would do it later. She said I said that three days ago. I said, do not keep a record of my wrongs. She said, then stop doing wrong. I then took out the trash as forcefully and as loudly as I possibly could. Because husband logic is, the louder we get, the more vindicated we become. And as I walk to the apartment's trash deposit, grumbling and complaining all the way, justifying my behavior at the complaint of her behavior, explaining to myself what I will not do because of what she's not doing, plotting my next angry sentence to both push my wife down and exalt myself up, I hear the voice of Jesus speak to me, how is that book on servanthood going? I repented, I apologized, and I would be lying to you if I told you that that was the last fight. We've been married for over 12 years and we've had numerous fights, some fair and some unfair, some over silly things and some over serious things, many filled with laughter and kindness and too many, I am ashamed to admit, filled with dishonor and rudeness." Married friends, have you had these kinds of fights? Aspiring for marriage friends, it's highly possible that you will have these kinds of fights. And what can happen before, during, and after fights is we become so infuriated with who our spouse is in contrast to who they should be that our unconditional wedding vows become conditional. We begin to think and treat one another by saying things that we vowed never to say on our wedding day. Things like, I will not serve you because you are selfish. I will not honor you because you are demeaning. I will not forgive you because you are unforgivable. I will not love you because you are not the person I married. This, of course, makes us fear. Have we married the wrong person? Stanley Hauerwas, professor at Duke University, expands on this fear by stating destructive to marriage. Is this self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family, are primary institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy? The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry. And if we look long enough and hard enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption, however, overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. He concludes... My wife has been married to five different men within our lifetime, and they have all been me. Now, how do you have a successful marriage if the spouse that you vowed unchanging commitment to has changing character? How do you love the lovable, kind, honoring spouse when they behave like this unlovable, rude, demeaning stranger? It is this mystery. The Apostle Paul says illuminates the mystery of the gospel Meaning, to understand Christ's bridegroom love for us is to understand the love of the spouse you married when they're behaving like a stranger that you did not marry. So then, how does Jesus love his bride? Jesus saw the creation of humanity was designed to be friends with God, He watched humanity become unfamiliar strangers to God through our embrace of sin. We attempted to live without God. We attempted to live like we are God. The sin of selfishness and pride was carried into further generations of humanity, which led to Genesis 6 saying that God repented that he made mankind. That word repent, of course, means to change one's mind. But the actual Hebrew means to lose one's breath. What you see when something catastrophic is happening, God lost his breath when he looked at the sin of mankind. As verse five says, the wickedness of people was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts was only evil continually. Meaning humanity, me, you were not lovable We're not kind, we're selfish to the bone, we have hate in our hearts, we choose revenge over forgiveness, we delight in indulgence over self-control, we are prideful creatures that readily claim self-made status. In the realm of eternity, we're truly undesirable, unlovable, unmarriable, and yet the gospel says in Philippians 2 that Jesus voluntarily gave up his wealth of perfection to take on our poverty of selfish sinfulness so we could share in his perfect holiness. Jesus took the penalty of our sins so we could be free to be with God again. And this was not an act of forced compliance. This was the choice of love. For Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So hear me carefully. In all of Scripture, there is no evidence of Jesus loving us because of us. There is evidence of Jesus loving us in spite of us. This is good news. We did not ask Jesus to come and die for our sins. We did not merit his service. We cannot pay back his sacrifice. We were not living for him and yet he died for us. This is how to love the stranger you're married to. This is how to love. This is the love of bridegroom Jesus for his bride. Jesus does not love us because of us, but in spite of us. And that unselfish love from him more than merits and should evoke an unselfish vow to him. Marriage to bridegroom Jesus means fulfilling our vows. The Bible calls this fulfillment obedience. Now, perhaps to better understand obedience, we can illuminate this last role. Jesus is king. In Revelation 17, 14, and 19, 16, Jesus is called the king of kings. Throughout the parables of the gospel, Jesus preaches of this kingdom of heaven. Jesus as king is perhaps the most forgotten or misunderstood of his roles. And the reason for this is simple. We don't know what it means to be in a theocracy because we live in a democracy. In a democracy, we vote on what we like. We appeal who we don't like. We amend laws that are inconvenient, are viewed as outdated. We protest to get something done or undone. Because in a democracy, the focus is always, what is best for me? But this kind of self-centered behavior is not so in a theocracy. In a theocracy, you are not your own. You are the king's. In a democracy, we say, is this politician for us? But in a theocracy, the king asks, is this person for me? Joshua 5.13 illuminates this principle. Joshua has just won another battle by the hand of the Lord. He's walking along the riverbanks with a sword in hand, plotting his next battle to win. And as he's walking along, he sees the commander of the Lord's army. Now in the Bible, every time we read of a angel, that is precisely what it is. But when we read of the angel or the commander, this is referring to no less than Jesus himself. Joshua, not knowing who he is talking to, and in a mindset of war, ask the commander of the Lord's army, King Jesus, are you for us or are you against us? To which King Jesus responds, neither. Now, to clarify, Jesus is not against us, for he is not cruel, but compassionate. But likewise, Jesus is not for us. This world is not a democracy. We are not the center. Our happiness is not his primary purpose because Jesus is king and our world and our lives are under his theocracy. The question is never, is Jesus for us, but are we for Jesus? We have to be very purposeful here and very clear. As E. Stanley Jones has said, to be sure that we're not getting Jesus from our beliefs, but are getting our beliefs from Jesus. His ways trump our ways. His will overrules our will. We cannot justify our wrongness by trying to veto commands and lifestyles that God himself calls right. We cannot amend verses in the Bible to be taken out if they offend us or to not be taken seriously if they convict us. Holiness is not an optional extra. The commands of God are not up for debate. We cannot appeal the king's law. We cannot impeach the king's rule. We cannot debate his decisions. We cannot protest his providence because this life in this world is not a democracy governed by our opinions and demands. This is a theocracy where King Jesus rules as he sees fit. Jesus, the King, has commanded against drunkenness. He's condemned sexual morality. He hates hate. He forbids unforgiveness. He has laws against lies. He decrees our selfishness to die. He commands for holiness for blamelessness, to live up to what we know, to pray without ceasing, to give our money to God because it's really God's, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to make disciples of all peoples so His name can be known and His kingdom can move from heaven to earth. It's not up for us to choose which commands of the king to obey and which to ignore. It is only up to us to bow. Now, it's at this point that if you're rebellious like me, You may object. This is not fair. Why should King Jesus be allowed to rule my life? Why can't I rule my own life? The answer is simple regarding his kingship versus our own. The Bible says Jesus is unselfish, pure, perfect, all knowing, all present, all powerful, loving mercy, acting justly, governing diligently. Holy, holy, holy. What the Bible says about humanity can be reiterated from Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Why is King Jesus king and we are not? Because he's the only one qualified to rule. We're not smart enough Not powerful enough, not good enough to be king of the world. Do you see Jesus fully? Yes, he is the friend that wants you. Yes, he is the savior that helps you. Yes, he is the bridegroom that loves you. But we must not forget or ignore, Jesus is also the king who rules you. And in his kingdom, loving him is evidenced by living for him. This is Jesus Friend, Savior, Bridegroom, and King. And he must be accepted in every role. Otherwise, he is not accepted at all. If Jesus is friend, but not anything else, we will want him, but may not need him. And if Jesus is Savior, but not anything else, we will need him, but may not want him. And if Jesus is bridegroom, but not anything else, we will love him, but may not bow to him. And if Jesus is king, but not anything else, we will bow to him, but may not love him. Jesus must be known in every role to know the full Jesus and accepted in every role for us to be fully Christian. So tonight I would like to invite you to have your altar experience to respond to God. The altar in biblical times was that place that you would go to give something to God, to show that God is God and you are not. This meant giving your tithes, this meant giving your best sheep, this meant giving your best fruits. Now, I don't think that anyone brought fruit or sheep tonight, but what this would mean is bringing your best of your money, bringing your relationships, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your plans, your careers, your majors, your hidden sin and saying, God, you're God, and I am not. Your life, your dreams, your hopes, and saying, God, you're God, and I am not. To know Jesus is eternal life, I'd like to invite the band back up as we end this. I think there are four different responses that we can make tonight. Maybe that means you guys getting up here. Maybe that means you praying with your small group. Uh, Stand up, raise your hands, sit down, bow your head. It doesn't matter to me. I just want you to be sincere with God. Four responses. If you do not know Jesus' friend, if that's you, then ask for God to be your friend tonight. To spend time with him. That's what friends do to talk to him about what you're afraid of. That's what friends do to talk to to him about what you love. That's what friends do to hear what Jesus loves. That's what friends do to be conscious of his heart and responsible to it. If you need to confess yourself a sinner and confess Jesus, your savior, these altars are open. This response time is for you. To ask Jesus, save me from my selfishness. Which can manifest itself, of course, in very numerous forms. From sexual morality, pornography, greed, pride, whatever it might be. Ask Jesus to save you. And if you would like Jesus, if you like Jesus, but you want to love him as bridegroom. To have that unconditional vow, then tonight is your night to say, Jesus, for richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health, through prosperity, but also through adversity. I am yours, God, and you're mine. This response time would be for you. And last but not least, if you do not want to bow to Jesus as king, but you know that you know that God is putting his eternal universe size building finger on your heart and saying, give this up. Change this. Do that. Don't do that. Be with me. If that's what God is asking you to do, then surrender. Let's be honest. Let's be transparent. Let's be gritty. The kingship of Jesus is scary. But as Winky Prattney has said, it's only scary to the degree that we do not know Jesus. The person you know the most and love the most is most likely the one that you trust the most, which would mean that in order to trust Jesus, we simply have to know him more, to love him more, to trust him more. And if you need to bow to Jesus as King, do that tonight and say, God, just help my unbelief. Help me to surrender, help me to die so that you can live in and through me. I'm gonna pray and I would encourage you to respond. Up at these altars, standing, raising your hands and surrender, bowing your heads in reverence, whatever it might be, sincerely get with God tonight. Jesus, thank you, Jesus. You would call us friends, Jesus. That's an amazing thought that the God of the universe would look at us and not call us slaves or servants, but he would call us friends, help us to be friends with you by sharing our lives with you. Thank you, Jesus. You came to save us from our sins. So save us from our sins tonight, God. Deliver us from evil. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth, in our lives, as it has been planned in heaven. And Jesus, would you be our bridegroom? that we would love you for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, through the best and through the worst. Thank you, Jesus, that you trust us, not just with the best of you, but with the worst aspects of following you, the persecutions, the suffering, the misery that this side of eternity can bring. Thank you, Jesus, that you would trust us with prayers answered and prayers unanswered, that you would trust us with success and with suffering. Help us to commit unconditionally with vows to you, to love you. And Jesus, would you help us to bow to You as King, to give up whatever You're asking us to give up—the career, the major, the relationship, the things that we do in the dark when no one is watching. The, if religion is proving and I, if religion is proven by isolation, then oh my God, may You be our God when we are by ourselves. Help us, Jesus, to surrender to You as King, to live for You in private, to live for You in public. That You would have it all that we would give you what we have. Help us, God. In Jesus' name we pray.